we are in the next to last sermon from the book of Genesis. Can you believe it? Some of you are breathing a sigh of relief now. I don't blame you. (laughs) But we do have two more sermons, including this one. And it's all God's word and it's rich. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 49. Genesis 49. Last time we were in Genesis, we saw not only uh, the picture of Joseph blessing the nations, being the savior of the Egyptians, politically speaking, uh, pointing forward to what God would do in even larger ways through the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, blessing the nations in them, and in one particular offspring to come. Uh, We saw... Jacob recognized that the day of his death was drawing near, and so Jacob, renamed by God Israel, so he has two names now, uh, Jacob, first of all, called Joseph to him, made sure that Joseph knew he didn't want to be buried in Egypt. He wanted to be buried with his fathers, identifying with the land of God's promise in Canaan. We saw, basically, the, the birthright, at least the blessings usually associated with the birthright, being given to Joseph and to his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. But Manasseh, the oldest son, whom Joseph would have thought uh, should receive the the greatest blessing as the firstborn, um, he did not get the greatest blessing. Ephraim, the younger of the two, received that from God through Jacob. But we've seen here Jacob giving uh, essentially inheritance blessings to uh, already to Joseph and Joseph's sons. And now this chapter, we see him doing that in a sense for all his sons. In general, it's it's a list of blessings, um, but we'll see it's actually a mixed bag. Uh, We'll see as this big idea unfolds in chapter 49, verses 1 to 28, we'll see that Jacob's oracle for his sons, his prophetic blessing, so it's really God speaking through him in a sense, Jacob's oracle for his sons actually rebukes sin. That's also in here too. But it stresses God's faithfulness. That's where the emphasis lies as we go further through this text. So we'll see what you might feel like a mixed bag of things. We see Jacob's oracle for his sons rebuking sin, but still stressing God's faithfulness to his, to his covenant people here. So as we look at the inheritance oracles for Israel's sons, first of all, let me just read for you verses 1 and 2, and then go to the end of the text, verse 28. The bookends will tell us a lot about how to view these words of Jacob. There's a remarkable range here of Jacob's prophecy, as you see in your notes. A remarkable range in his prophecy. Verse 1, Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Then down in verse 28, it says, after he utters this oracle, All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. So each son stands for a tribe. Uh, scripture says this is what their father said to them as he blessed them blessing each with the blessing suitable to him first few you'll say that doesn't sound like blessings (laughs) but when you take the whole package together again there is rebuke for sin 
But the emphasis is on God's faithfulness to his people going into the distant future. This is spoken to the sons and in in relation to who they are, what they were named at birth, sometimes what they've done in their lives. But it's it's, um, really significant for the tribes that will come from each of them. It's significant for where each of their tribes of descendants will settle in the promised land. It's significant for hope as they will have many trials to come as the Israelites, the old covenant people of God, and yet God will be faithful to them. Also, um, this would have been very comforting and very very um, needed for the original audience. When I say original audience, I mean who was there when Moses originally penned this. Moses penned this, essentially, when the tribes of Israel were coming out of Egypt on their way to the Promised Land, right? So as Alan Ross says, he says, prophecy was given by God to sustain his people through their barren and sometimes dismal experiences to show them that God planned their future. For Jacob's family, the future lay beyond their settlement in Egypt in the land of promise. Like their ancestors, the people of Israel would need to hear again and again the promises of their inheritance and of their participation in the continued program in order to keep the faith. The overall theme of the oracle of Jacob is thus the blessing of the fathers that would now be handed down to the tribes. Perhaps this was written after Israel failed to believe God's promises at Kadesh Barnea, after those Ten spies brought a bad report as opposed to Caleb and Joshua. Whenever this was written, Israel needed things like this to assure them God has this all planned out for our good. And we need to rely on the Lord our God who is an everlasting rock. He will be faithful to us. And our strength doesn't come from ourselves. It comes from the one who has been our covenant God from the days of our forefathers. Also, it's interesting, this um, oracle of Jacob parallels a shorter oracle of Noah in chapter 9, verses 25 to 27. After the flood, um, Noah pronounced blessing and cursing on his various descendants based on the actions of his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. I won't go into all that now. You probably remember it. If you don't, there's a sermon on it. But um, I'll just read it because it's very short. Genesis nine twenty four through 27. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, cursed be Canaan. That would have been a descendant of his son Ham. Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth. And let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Interesting, we had that sort of closing out the first section of Genesis, the, the, the first uh, sec- big section before Abraham's family comes into focus. Now at the end of this section about Abraham's family, we again have a something like that. Something of blessing and cursing. Last thing is that As Andrew Steinman says, it ought to be noted that this first long poem in the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, the first long poem here 
is most similar in form to the last long poem in the Pentateuch, Moses' blessing, Deuteronomy 33. That poem pronounces blessing on the twelve tribes of Israel immediately before Moses' death, just as this poem pronounces blessing on Jacob's sons immediately before Jacob's death. So there's a lot going on here, so much for an introduction, the remarkable range of Jacob's prophecy. But again, one of the big things you should get is that Jacob said, I'll tell you what shall happen to you in days to come, or in the latter days, literally. So this is a far-reaching prophecy. Well, we get to verses uh, 3 through 7, where we start getting into the prophecy itself. First of all, we encounter the righteous recompense of lawless passions. First in Reuben, then in Simeon and Levi. So for the first three sons of Jacob, all born of Leah, the firstborn and the next two, um, they get rebuke right out of the gate here. There's righteous recompense of lawless passions. Verse 3, Reuben, uh, Jacob says, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. That is, that would be his rightful position as the firstborn. Verse 4, unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. And then he switches to the third person as if to say to all the rest of the boys, he went up to my couch. You recall Reuben had lain with his father's concubine, mother of some of his half-brothers, with Bilhah. Verse 5. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords, or perhaps their knives. We'll talk about that. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob, and scatter them in Israel. First three sons, quickly receiving rebukes, and consequences for their descendants. The righteous recompense of lawless passions. Reuben is called, though, though he ought to be to get the preeminence as the firstborn, he loses it. Because it said he is unstable, pachaz, unstable as water, and unstable can also mean proud, insolent, uncontrollable, undisciplined, that idea. Not just weak, but unstable as in volatile. Proud, insolent, uncontrollable, undisciplined. Um, It's from the same root word describes a lawless mob in Judges 9 verse 4. It describes the wanton prophets in Zephaniah 3 verse 4. Uh, So as uh, Derek Kidner says, it suggests wildness as much as weakness. And it's that aspect of water so quickly becoming an undisciplined torrent, as in Proverbs seventeen fourteen, That's the point of comparison. Reuben was a man of ungoverned impulse. He was like floodwaters that went over all their banks and were just out of control. Lawless passions. So, again, Derek Kidner, the tribe of Reuben was to fail in leadership. 
Well, there was one moment recorded when a Reubenite, along with some others, took, tried to take some leadership. It was inglorious and it didn't last long. It was the rebellion of Dathan and Abiram against Moses. Dathan was from Reuben. It's like the only time we see a Reubenite exercising, trying to exercise leadership in Israel. So Reuben did not get the preeminence. God takes uncontrolled passions seriously. Lawless passions. Likewise, Simeon and Levi, so the second and third born, again from Leah, uh, Reuben's full brothers, they did not defile their father's concubine, but they did now, that, now, in their minds, they were responding to something which was indeed a great evil. Their sister had been defiled, had been raped, their sister Dinah. But in response to that, Simeon and Levi decided to murder an, an entire town of men and take captive their women and children and everything they had. They didn't care about justice. They cared about revenge, about letting it be known, no one does this to us. And we will, we will not have any mercy on anyone when we're this angry. <laughs> so it says in verse 5, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords, or perhaps their knives. Uh, perhaps referring actually to how they made, first of all, in this scheme they had set up back in that story, um, they they wanted to destroy this town. It, um, it was the prince of this town, essentially, the, the nobility of the town who had defiled their sister. So they made all the men get circumcised so they would be incapacitated when the boys came in and wiped them out. So knives might refer to that. But verse 6, In their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Some think because throughout the rest of Jacob's oracle here, references to animals are always figurative, they're ne never literal. Some think it's just a restatement, hamstringing oxen, talking about how they incapacitated the men of Shechem and then, and then slaughtered them. In any case, the point again is lawless passions. For Reuben, it was lust, and there might have been something in there of just of intentional dishonor to his father as well. Um, certainly was there, even if it wasn't his main goal. Simeon and Levi, it was anger. Cruel anger. Which they would not control. They gave full vent to it. Again, there were consequences. The main consequence is that Jacob says... But he's sort of speaking on God's behalf, how he words this. He says in verse 7, I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. These two tribes never got a piece of land in one spot, a big piece of land in one spot like all the other tribes did once they got to Canaan. They had scattered towns throughout other people's possessions. Simeon and kind of more or less disappears as it just gets absorbed into Judah, essentially. They have scattered towns in Judah. Some of their towns, the Philistines, took over pretty quickly. 
Uh, you remember David lived in a town called Ziklag at one point. It had been a Simeonite town that the Philistines had taken. Then there's Levi. And you know, if we look at this from the perspective of the rest of the story, there's actually good news here. <laughs> um, the curse was sort of turned into a blessing for Levi. We read not too long ago in one of the scripture readings here in church, the account of the golden calf. And you remember what Levi did after the golden calf. When Moses says, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And the Levites came and Moses said, you need to go out. You need to find the people who were responsible for the golden calf worship that happened. Aside from Aaron, those who were the ringleaders and who were involved in it, you need to slaughter them, even if they're your brother or your friend. Kill them. That's what they did. And on that day, Moses said, God had set them apart for his special service. So yes, the Levites, because of what their forefather had done, they were scattered in Israel, but they became scattered as a blessing throughout Israel because they became the tribe that was, in a sense, closest to God. They became the tribe that served the tabernacle and the temple that were... Um, directly involved with, with all the ins and outs of God's worship. Uh, of course, the priestly line of Aaron was part of the tribe of Levi. Moses was a Levite, and he, he was Israel's deliverer. Uh, they didn't receive land as an inheritance that is one piece of land altogether, but they did receive 48 towns and pasture lands scattered throughout the tribes. Many times these were the, ver the most important towns, uh, cities of refuge and so on. So as Richard Belcher mentions here, faithful actions in honor of God can even turn a curse into a blessing. Just because there are consequences for sin doesn't mean that's the end of the story. Remember that. Here we come to something glorious then, verses 8 through 12. The regal rest. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to make the outline flow together a little bit. <clears throat> um the regal rest of victorious Judah. We come to the fourth son of Jacob, also the fourth son of Leah. Judah, who had started out very badly. Remember? Judah had suggested selling Joseph to the Ishmaelites to sell him into slavery in Egypt. Judah had, for a while, gone and become just like the Canaanites, married into them, had them as his best friends, left his, fam his father's family. Um, he had wicked sons whom God killed because they were so wicked. He had, uh, had no problem approaching a prostitute for her services. He unknowingly, then, because of that, impregnated his daughter-in-law. Remember that whole mess? That was Judah. But God's grace got a hold of him, and he became the intercessor between the governor of Egypt and his brother Benjamin, and on behalf of his father Jacob. And he offered himself in Benjamin's place. He was a changed man. So now Judah is addressed, verses 8 through 12, and there's nothing but blessing here. Jacob says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, 
who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, or better, the Hebrew is just, until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine, and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. We'll have to spend a little time, since we're so far removed from their culture, to kind of piece this together, of course. But it's all good stuff. It's all blessing here. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. As we'll see if we have time as we go through all the the brothers here, there's often word plays on their names or why they were named with their name at their birth. If we remember from earlier in Genesis. When Leah had conceived and born this son, she said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah, reflecting praise of the Lord. And here, playing on that, Jacob says, Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. That's pretty clear, isn't it? You'll have victory, domination, dominion over your enemies. Your hand's on their neck. You got them right where you want them. Here we see further played out how God is is going to accomplish his promises. Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity, speaking to the serpent, between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. There was this, this spiritual warfare, which would break out into all kinds of warfare, uh, happening from the beginning, and it would end with one man who would be the consummate, ultimate seed, offspring of the woman. And this man would deal the death blow to the head of the serpent. But there would be enemies. There's a great enemy from the very beginning, that old serpent, the devil. And under his sway, there would be enemies for God's people. (laughs) But Judah's hand would be on the neck of his enemies. And God had told Abraham in Genesis 22, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring, here speaking of one singular person, your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. Possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. We see, um, we see this even played out in preliminary ways in the tribe of Judah. Judges chapter 1, after the death of Joshua, there's, there are enemies left to be conquered in Canaan. And it says, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I will likewise go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. And God gave them great victories. One of those first victories defeated 10,000 Canaanites and Perizzites at Bezek. Uh, And Judges 1 actually records a lot of victories of Judah specifically. 
they led the charge after Joshua's death in continuing to conquer the land. They even fought against Jerusalem, it says, Judges 1.8, and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, it tells about all the other areas they conquered. And it includes, Judges 1.10, that they went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron, which was formerly Kiriath Arba, and they defeated Sheshai and Ahiman and Talmai. Why is that significant? Well, Judah was the, the tribe, with Caleb leading in that. Judah was the tribe that took city of the giants, the Anakim, that had so frightened the unfaithful Israelites a generation earlier. But God gave victory to Israel through Judah over even these terrifying giants in the land. Judah's hand was on the neck of his enemies. But of course, it doesn't stop there. God chose a king after his own heart, David, the son of Jesse, from the tribe of Judah. David's hand was certainly on the neck of his enemies. He was a warrior king, and successfully so, starting with Goliath. But it's written in Psalm 110, David, by God's Spirit, wrote about his messianic son to come, the one whom David calls his Lord. Psalm 110, verses 1 through 2, Yahweh says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Not to get too far away from our main text. Uh, we continue in what Jacob says of Judah. He says, your father's son shall bow down before you. Just as they had to Joseph. In Egypt, Jacob's sons all bowed down before Joseph. But going into the future, Israel would bow before Judah. Verse 9, Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? Are any of you brave enough or stupid enough to go mess with the lion who's crouched there? <laughs> I don't think so. Even if they're at the zoo, they're still lions. No one is going to want to mess with Judah, is the idea. Because they are mighty because of their, through their God. Now, Judah is not the only tribe anywhere that gets compared to a lion. In Moses' blessing on the tribes, Deuteronomy 33, um, the similar imagery of the lion is used to describe the fierce tribes of Gad and Dan. Later on, when Balaam prophesies blessing instead of cursing upon Israel, the Moabites are trying to get him to curse Israel. God has him bless them anyway. And Balaam's prophecies picture Israel as a whole, as a lion, in much the same way. And interestingly, in Isaiah, the Lord God, Yahweh, is a lion who will defend Zion, his people. And I hope you recognize that that theme is developed further in Revelation 5, where Jesus is explicitly called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. The one, and one who is worthy to receive worship as God. He is both God and man. According to the flesh, he's from the tribe of Judah. But his might is not just because he's from the tribe of Judah. It's also because he's the Lord of glory. We'll come back to that, obviously, at the end. Verse 10, it says... 
The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. That's how I would translate that. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. The scepter, a symbol of a king's reign, of his royal power, will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff, similar word, from between his feet. Um, So you might be picturing here, might need to picture a king sitting on his throne with his scepter resting on his shoulder and lying between his feet. It's kind of like a staff, uh, symbolizing not only his royal rule, kings were often pictured as shepherds as well, shepherds of their people. Until, well, I'm sorry, I I should mention, again, this is according to the promises to Abraham and his seed. Genesis 17, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And later God makes a covenant with David from the tribe of Judah. 2 Samuel 7, 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. We don't have time, but if we went to Psalm 89, it elaborates on that to let us know it really is forever. Even when the kings of Judah's line, of David's line, did wrong, they would be disciplined. But Psalm 89 confirms, nevertheless, the kingship shall never depart from David's line. It'll be like the moon and the sun and the stars fixed in the heavens. (laughs) Until Shiloh comes. Now, this doesn't mean that uh, this idea of until, especially in the original language, it's not that um, it's not that the kingship will never depart from Judah until someone else comes and then it will depart. No, that's not the point. Uh, it's saying um, rather Judah's rule will continue until its consummation in this ultimate king from Judah. Um This will never cease until the goal is reached, is the idea. Until Shiloh, one called Shiloh, has international dominion. Not just rule over Israel, but rule over the peoples. To him shall be the obedience of the peoples, the nations. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on... uh, There's actually a lot of difficult translational things all through this text, uh, chapter 49... And I'm trying not to spend too much time on that stuff. Um, some translate it where our ESV has until tribute comes to him. Uh, let's see. That's verse the end of verse 10. Um, again, I don't think until tribute comes to him is the best way to put that. People are trying to understand what it means as they're translating it. So some say until until he comes to whom it belongs, that is, to whom rule belongs. That might be something. But probably the best way is just just go very literally with the Hebrew until Shiloh comes. Andrew Steinman says this name, Shiloh, probably comes from a Hebrew root meaning to be at ease, to rest, to be prosperous. So it pictures the Messiah as a man coming from the tribe of Judah, to bring rest and prosperity to Israel and the nations. And we'll see that play out in the next verse, too. Rest and prosperity mark his reign. He's the prince of peace, right? But to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. 
as God says to the Davidic king in Psalm 2, uh, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Zechariah 9, 9-10 Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, which might actually be uh, an illusion, uh, intentionally sounding like the next verse in our text. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. By the way, just an aside, I know we're kind of jumping ahead a little bit, but I can't help it. Uh, There's two levels of this, isn't there? Christ speaking peace to the nations. He gives us peace with God as he reconciles us individually as sinners to God, doesn't he? Already he is speaking peace to the nations. We, the Gentiles, are waiting for his law, for his instruction. Jesus gives us peace with God and then peace with each other as the church. He teaches us to have his peace. But one day, it'll be a whole other level. When the kingdom is consummated, when Jesus has put down all his enemies, then there will be peace in new heavens and a new earth that never ends. And so, um, one one is tightly connected to the other. The only people who will populate that new world, that new creation, will be those who have already received peace with God through Jesus Christ. That's how he speaks peace to the nations. Now we go to the next verse in chapter 49 here. And it probably is, it probably suddenly sounds really strange to us. Verse 11. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine... He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Lots of agricultural, ancient agricultural setting here that just is so foreign to us. So let's think about it. First of all, there's this stuff about a donkey and a a grapevine. Well, grapevines were very valued very valuable they would have been protected Uh, they took several years to bear fruit their fruit was highly valued that's where they got their wine if you're going to find a a plant to tie your donkey to you're not ordinarily going to choose the grapevine that's so valued and precious and could easily be messed up and the donkey could easily just eat all the grapes while he's at it Someone in the commentary compared this to, to uh, using a dollar bill to light a cigarette. It's like, what? It's a symbol of, you can do it because you have so much you don't care anymore. Okay? There's such prosperity that it doesn't matter anymore. That's the idea. So, I lose that vine? Eh. I already have more than I know what to do with, so. (laughs) And um, 
Derek Kidner says, verse 11 has already thrown care and thrift to the winds with its talk of vines used as hitching posts and wine as washing water. It says there, um, he's washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. So there's abundant wine. Obviously, this is figurative, poetic language. This whole thing, this whole oracle of Jacob is Hebrew poetry, which makes it so tricky sometimes. It's poetic, but it's getting the point across in, in big terms. The wine, the wine flows. It's almost as if it's what people wash their clothes in. <laughs> Particularly the, the Messiah here washes his, his vesture in the wine, in the blood of grapes. But Derek Kidner continues, he says, in its own material terms, it bids adieu, it says goodbye, to the pinched regime of thorns and sweat, for the shout of them that triumph, the song of them that feast. So we see here a hint, at least, and of course the New Testament opens this up for us, but there's a hint that no longer are we fighting thorns and thistles, just scraping by under the curse. Under Judah's rule, we come to prosperity like we've never seen. Interesting, and Kidner mentions this too, interesting, what was, we just read it this morning, in John 2, what was Jesus' first sign that he did in Galilee? Was that symbolic? They had no more wine, but there were these large containers of water for purification, for washing. Jesus turns it into wine. Sound familiar? A lot of symbolism there. Jesus is the one who brings us, as one hymn puts it, into his house of wine. And it's all on his merit, not ours. Again, not, there's all sorts of rabbit trails we could take. We don't have time. We have to get to the other tribes, verses 13 through 21. We see the resilient repose of other tribes. That's my feeble attempt to summarize several tribes here. The, the resilient repose of other tribes. We're going to see here in the verses 13 through 21, um, sometimes repose, that God is going to give these people rest in the land. Sometimes there's more a picture of resilience. That is, there's still going to be major struggles and enemies and battles to be fought. But God's people will be resilient. They will be able to, to fight back and to keep fighting. Let's just read these verses together and then we'll quickly comment on them. Verse 13. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships. And his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey, crouching between the sheepfolds, or maybe uh, between the two saddlebags, would be the idea. He saw that a resting place was good, and that the land was pleasant. So he bowed his shoulder to bear, and became a servant at forced labor. Or you could look at that as a servant at conscripted labor. Verse 16. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path, that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. 
Nephtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns, or maybe uh, he's a doe let loose, he utters beautiful words. Quick comments on each of these. Um, so verse 13, there's a lot of discussion based on where Zebulun actually was up in Galilee. But somehow they had access to the Mediterranean Sea, to Sidon, to trade. Uh, so they were enriched with God's blessing based on where they were up north in the land in Galilee. Issachar was also up there in the Galilean area. He's pictured as a strong donkey, a good work animal, uh, who finds rest. Um, as Andrew Steinman says, it's not necessary to view the forced labor in verse 15 as subjugation to Canaanites, like many see here. Instead, Issachar might be depicted as reliable workers, providing labor for public works projects during Israel's monarchy. He lists scriptures on that. Uh, so, it's a sturdy donkey in verse 13, in exchange for being able to lie down and rest between the saddlebags that contained his burden, he was given a good land. So much for Issachar. Dan, Dan's interesting. Dan's name means judge, and so here there's a wordplay again. It says, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Judging is a good thing here. It it's achieving justice and vindication and, and ruling among the people. And he'll be as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan was one of the sons of Bilhah, the concubine. But he will have equal status among the tribes as one of the tribes of Israel. Uh, it's interesting that Dan is pictured as a snake. A serpent who kind of is on its own, but he'll spring up and bite something a lot bigger and stronger. The horse bites the horse's heels and the rider falls off. So it's like a sneak attack. The serpent would be no match for the horse and rider if it were uh, a fair contest. <laughs> but uh, the, the serpent sneaks up and bites from behind and achieves victory. Interesting that the Danites are kind of known in biblical history for... Uh, they were small, but they were aggressive <laughs> and dangerous when cornered. Uh, some descendants of Dan uh, did a sneak attack on the town of Laish way up north and um, destroyed it when they thought that their own tribal territory wasn't, wasn't good enough for them. And they renamed it Dan. So ever after that, you hear of Dan to Beersheba as the land of Israel. But then Samson is from Dan. And Samson is the one judge who fights the Philistines all by himself. <laughs> In God's strength. Until he loses it. But Samson is like a serpent that bites the horse's heels and the rider's knocked off. And here Jacob exclaims, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Interesting, he places that right after Dan and right before some other tribes that are mentioned that will have to resort to attacking the heels of people stronger than them. Jacob is, is reminding them he's confident of God's strength on their behalf, but it's God's deliverance when they are saved. Though they're often seemingly confronted with stronger opponents. Verse 19, the name Gad in Hebrew sounds like, sounds like raiders and raiding. Um, 
Dan actually had the idea of good fortune or luck in his name. It's ironic, he'll be attacked by, by marauding bands of raiders. Gad was out east, east of the Jordan River, exposed to a whole bunch of possible enemies. And so that was true in their history, but Gad will be able to fight back when it's attacked. And they, the Gadites are proven warriors in Scripture. So, as an, a very old commentator, Julian of Norwich, said, <clears throat> commenting on this, uh, he said not, God said not, thou shalt not be tempested, thou shalt not be travailed. But he said, thou shalt not be overcome. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. You will have trouble in this world, <laughs> but you will be victorious is the idea. Verse 20, Asher's food shall be rich and he shall yield royal delicacies. Again, Asher was up north in the Galilee hill country. It was lush, it was fertile. Um, and Asher would live up to his, his name, Happy One. Verse 21, Naphtali. Um, it's pictured as a, a doe, a deer who's sure-footed and secure. And there's all sorts of stuff in Hebrew here. Again, we don't have time. Uh, but uh, this sort of animal was often associated with um, sure-footed warriors and uh, the messengers coming from a battle, bringing a message of victory. And so that probably fits where I would say, verse 21, he utters beautiful words. Judges chapter 4, we see Barak uh, go with Deborah to defeat the Canaanites, their Canaanite oppressors. Barak was from the tribe of Naphtali. And then Barak helped to compose a song of victory in Judges 5 about it. Beautiful words about their victory. Then we come to Joseph, verses 22 through 26. Thanks for hanging with me. There's a lot here. Verses 22 through 26, we see the resolute reliance of fruitful Joseph. We'll see fruitful Joseph. Joseph is fruitful. Um, despite his enemies, but he has a resolute reliance. He is steady, and he's resolute, and he's relying on God. Verse 22, Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely, yet his bow remained unmoved, and his arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, or, you, or some have it, again, by the name of the shepherd, the rock of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb, the blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. So again, there's this note of the double portion for Joseph, like we saw in the last chapter. But the important thing here about Joseph is reminding, it's really, it's sort of both about Joseph the man, right? And all his sufferings and trials. And then Joseph the tribe. What was their security? Where did their strength come from? It came from the mighty one of Jacob, the shepherd, the stone of Israel. The God of 
his father, the Almighty. There's all these names for God here. He's the mighty one of Jacob who defends weak Jacob. He's the shepherd who led Jacob all his life long, even though it was a dark life often. Even though it was often the valley of the shadow of death, the Lord was his shepherd leading him through it. And he did that the same for Joseph. He's the stone or rock of Israel, a rock, a secure place, a fortress, if you will, a place to stand. He's the Almighty. Nothing's too hard for him. But of course, Joseph is a fruitful bough. In spite of all his hardships, he bears much fruit. Just as with us, our Lord says he If we are part of the true vine, he will prune us so that we will bear more fruit. That's God's purpose in that. And the name of Joseph's son, Ephraim, has to do with that fruitfulness. So this fits. Verse 27, the last tribe we mentioned, Benjamin. The relentless renown of warlike Benjamin. The relentless renown of warlike Benjamin. Verse 27, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, or a little more literally, Benjamin is a wolf that will tear. He tears the prey. In the morning, devouring the prey, and at evening, dividing the spoil. He's taking both ends of the day to say, all day long, he's going at it. He's on the hunt, or he's, or he's uh, dividing the spoil from the hunt, from the battle. It's warlike. It's relentless, and he'll be renowned for this. John Currid mentions, The tribe of Benjamin receives a land allotment in Canaan, situated between the tribes of Ephraim and Judah. It remains a war zone throughout Israel's history. The Benjamites themselves become well-known as a warrior tribe. Um, There's a bunch of Benjaminites who were known as left-handed slingers with their slingshots. They could sling, I think it says, as a hare and not miss. Wrong hand with the left hand. Um, Ironic, because Benjamin means son of my right hand. But even their left-handed slingers didn't miss. Ehud. Some of you, probably your favorite story in the Bible. Ehud, who killed the fat king, Eglon. (laughs) And the king was so fat, Ehud couldn't pull his sword back out. Um, Ehud was a Benjamite, a left-handed Benjamite who went on his own, and Eglon was a Moabite king oppressing Israel. He had went to see the king. He got all alone with him. He killed him and left him locked in his upper chamber, and his servants thought the king was taking a long time in the bathroom. And finally, they come in, and he's there dead. This is scripture, folks. And Ehud's gone. The deed is done, and he's leading Israel to victory. He was a wolf. He went in, got out. Very easy. In a bad sense, in the days of the judges, the Benjaminites savaged some people at Gibeah, and as a result, they provoked a civil war in Israel. But for a while, until God finally um, turned the tables, for a while, the first few battles, Benjamin faced off against all the other tribes put together and beat them. They were hard to to kill. We should be reminded of King Saul, the Benjamite, 
His fierce sword was wielded for good against Israel's enemies and men for evil against David and anyone he thought helped David, like the priests. David sang of Saul that his sword returned not empty. Said of Saul and his son Jonathan, they were swifter than eagles, stronger than lions. Second Samuel one. And there was Mordecai the Benjaminite. Under Mordecai's leadership, the Jews swiftly destroyed everyone who had sought to annihilate them. The Book of Esther. Then there's Saul of Tarsus from the tribe of Benjamin. He was unequaled in his fierce, relentless attacks on Jesus and his church. Later, he was unequaled in his labor for Jesus and his church. In his spiritual warfare, taking the gospel everywhere, far and wide, as a soldier of Jesus Christ. At first, he had ravaged the church, Scripture says, dragging off men and women house after house, committing them to prison. He breathed out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. But later, by the grace of God, he could say he'd worked harder than all the apostles for Christ. Interesting, he's from Benjamin. Well, again, the big idea here was that Jacob's oracle for his sons rebukes sin. That's how it started. But it stresses God's faithfulness. It quickly shifts gears. Sin has been dealt with, but now I'm going to tell you boys and your descendants what God will do for you. And that's the flavor, isn't it? God would judge sin, but he would still be faithful to his old covenant people physical offspring of Jacob. That faithfulness would reach its goal when Judah's heir, Jesus Christ, would bring people from all nations into the new covenant. To him would be the obedience of the peoples. So my time is limited, but there are some illustrated themes here, I think, for God's people. Some themes we've seen illustrated in this oracle. First few I'm going to be very brief with. First of all, God's comprehensive plans for good to his people. It's not just that God will figure out a way to do his people good along the way. He has it all planned from the beginning, just as he did here for the Israelites. This was hundreds of years before they ever had any land in Canaan. And yet, Jacob, by God's... um, as God's mouthpiece was able to confidently talk about their blessings after they would defeat the Canaanites and settle in the promised land. In Christ, Ephesians 1 says, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God has comprehensive Comprehensive plans for good to his people. Because that's who God is. He's the Alpha and the Omega. And he's good. Now while it's true that God works all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That's not to say that any connection to God's people makes God ignore your evil deeds. So that's the second point. Just because you're somehow connected to God's people doesn't mean God will overlook evil. Remember God's appropriate response to evil among his people. I briefly want to read to you what God said to the high priest Eli through a prophet in 1 Samuel 2. You have the reference there in your notes. 1 Samuel 2, 30-35. 
Eli was the high priest in Israel. He certainly had a connection to God's people, a position among them. And yet he had honored his sons above God. He had let his sons do abominations in the place of God's worship. And so here's what God says. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress, you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, who shall do according to all uh, to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. So don't excuse your lawless passion saying, well, I have a connection to God's people. God's going to overlook that, this. No, Galatians 6, 7, don't be deceived. God's not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. So these kinds of scriptures warn us, for one thing, there are people who claim to be God's people who aren't in their hearts. And if they refuse to control their evil inclinations, they, they should not expect eternal life. But it should also warn genuine believers that God will deal appropriately with our sin. And we can't keep sowing to the flesh and expect to reap a good product. So the rebuke for sin should be felt here. At the same time, as we said, as Richard Belcher put it, faithful actions in honor of God can even turn a curse into a blessing. So don't use the evils of your past actions or your past environment to give up either. The Levites had a curse on them for what their forefather had done. That curse became a blessing. When they stepped out in loyal zeal for God, they became the mediating tribe between God and his people. And God says, I myself will be their inheritance. Third theme here, God's almighty provision. I was trying to think of a simpler word. I just couldn't. God's almighty provision for the tenacity of his people. You know what tenacity is to be tenacious? It means you endure and hold on in spite of everything that's thrown at you. You won't let go, that sort of thing. God's almighty provision so we can be tenacious. You saw that with some of these smaller tribes. There's a theme here of how the tribes of Israel were often outgunned, so to speak. Yet God enabled them to remain while their enemies came and went. They might be harassed or even trampled by surrounding foes, but they were unable to get up and strike back. And it's that way for all God's saints. Even a Samson, who, yes, was a saint, 
Hebrews 11 says so. He said, Lord, I've lost my eyes, lost my freedom. I'm in the temple of a pagan god being celebrated as Philistine's victory. Let me have victory one more time. And he killed more in his death than he had in his life. But God enables us to be tenacious as his saints. To get up again. To fight again. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, the hymnal... The hymn says, I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Second Corinthians 4, 7, Paul says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. I'm skipping some because of the time. Deuteronomy 33, in Moses' blessing to the tribes, he addresses, the last tribe he addresses, he tells them, as your days, so shall your strength be. And then he says this, There is none like God, O Jeshurun, who rides through the heavens to your help, through the skies in his majesty. The eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. And he thrust out the enemy before you and said, Destroy. Reminds me of the hymn, which says, Every day the Lord himself is near me, with a special mercy for each hour. All my cares... He gladly bears and cheers me. He whose name is counselor and power. The protection of his child and treasure is a charge that on himself he laid. As your days, your strength shall be in measure. This the pledge to me he made. Last theme. God's victorious king for the peace of his people. When we see all these other themes, when we see our weakness in the face of the enemy, When we see our sin, which God cannot bless, we can be driven to despair. But there is one whose righteousness justifies sinners, whose omnipotence saves the crushed in spirit. And that's our king, the Lion of Judah. The Lamb who's conquered all our foes by being condemned and slain in our place. And that's how Revelation 5 pictures him. The Apostle John weeps because no one is found worthy to unleash God's good purposes in the world. To redeem, bring redemption for his people. And he's told to stop weeping. Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. He's overcome so that he can open the scroll and seven seals. And John sees... Not a lion, but a lamb, standing as though it had been slain. Given great authority. And heaven's response to this lion of Judah, who is also a lamb, is to say, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, 
And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So stop weeping, believer. God our Father will chastise us in love, but he, he doesn't deal with us according to our sins. He doesn't reward us according to our iniquities, Scripture says. God does not reward us as our sins deserve. He rewards us as Jesus' blood and righteousness deserve. That's our king. We can rest in him. Let's pray together. Father, this is a lot to take in, a lot to communicate. And thank you that you privilege unworthy preachers to to present your word. Help us to understand who our God is, his good plans for us. Help us to be tenacious, to fight on even when we fall, get up. And help our trust and reliance to be in the almighty God and in our almighty king, who is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And whom you will bless, through whom you will bless your people. Though they are unworthy, he is worthy. Help us to be strong, be strengthened in the grace that is in Christ Jesus today. And remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the descendant of David. We pray this in his name. Amen.